a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about the importance of faith and practice. And tonight I want to give a little bit of a complimentary talk. I want to talk about the other side of faith. So it, it happens in practice that as we feel more confidence in the Dharma, as we p- place more of our faith in the Dharma and in practice, that there's a corresponding loss of faith in what is not in harmony with the Dharma, what's not in accord with practice. So we could call this the loss of misplaced faith, the loss of faith that we put in things that were not really worthy of our faith, not really deserving of our faith. So it's the loss of faith that we can find real happiness in things and people, places, experiences that just by their very nature are not able to give us what we're seeking, not able to provide us with real happiness, with deep contentment, with real peace. And this is a process that we all go through in the course of our practice. In Pali, there's a word for it. It's called nibida, which is usually translated into English as disenchantment, nibida which is a word that comes from, uh, according to online sources, uh, the verb nibindanti in Pali, which the literal meaning of that is to be satiated in the sense of having had enough, having had enough of something, satiation. And we often find the word nibida uh, connected with the word viraga, which might be a little bit more familiar. That's the term for uh, non-craving, viraga, not craving, which is often translated into English as dispassion. So we have this process of disenchantment and dispassion. And if we look into uh, the suttas, as some of you have done, I know, then we see over and over again the Buddha really stressing the importance of disenchantment. As, as really a central aspect of spiritual practice, as an essential element of the path. So this is just one place that it shows up. This is a, a short sutra from the Samyutta Nikaya called uh, the Anudhamma Sutta, in, in accordance with the Dhamma. It says, for someone practicing the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma, what accords with the Dhamma is this, that they keep cultivating disenchantment with regard to form, that they keep cultivating disenchantment with regard to feeling, that they keep cultivating disenchantment with regard to perception, that they keep cultivating disenchantment with regard to fabrications, mental formations, that they keep cultivating disenchantment with regard to consciousness. By cultivating disenchantment with regard to the five aggregates of clinging, they are totally released from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, distress, and despair. They are totally released, I tell you, from suffering. So through this cultivation of disenchantment. And very often, even when the Buddha was not um, giving a teaching directly on this topic of disenchantment, uh, time and time again, he would kind of work his way back around to it as a little bit of a prelude or a, a coda to a teaching as a touchstone. So he would um, perhaps give a teaching or be about to give a teaching and then he would add just a little bit of a, a, you know, an addendum onto it that the reason that this 
teaching is significant, the reason that it's important, the reason that it's relevant, is that, incli- is that it inclines towards disenchantment, it inclines towards dispassion. And we also see this over and over again. This is one really famous example that we've probably heard. It's um, also from the Samyutta Nikaya, the Simsata Sutta, which is this teaching on the, the handful of leaves that we quote so often. So once the Blessed One was staying at Kosambi in the Simsapa forest, then picking up a few Simsapa leaves with his hand, he asked the monks, what do you think, monks? Which are more numerous, the few Simsapa leaves in my hand or those overhead in the Simsapa forest? Why the leaves in your hand, Blessed One, are few in number. Those overhead in the Simsapa forest are much more numerous. In the same way, monks, those things that I have known with direct knowledge but have not taught are far more numerous than what I have taught. So that part of it we're mostly familiar with. But then he goes on to say, and why haven't I taught those other things? Because they're not connected with the goal. They do not relate to the path and do not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, calm, knowledge, awakening, or freedom. That is why I have not taught them. They don't contribute to this process of of disenchantment. But in the West, we don't tend to to talk so much about that disenchantment piece of the teaching, or of any teachings, really. We don't tend to get into that so much, even though it does show up over and over and over again in the suttas. And, uh, you know, in a way, we can understand this. You know, we can sympathize uh, with uh, maybe stepping a little carefully around this topic, Um, that word disenchantment, you know, there's a lot of words in Pali that it really is hard to find a good English translation for them. They're just things we don't have a, a concept for in English. But this word disenchantment, it's actually a pretty accurate tra- translation in this case of um, nibida. It's pretty, it's pretty close to the actual meaning of it. And yet, we say that word dispassion, those of us that are English speakers, and it doesn't leave the best aftertaste in the mind. And it has a definite connotation in English that's not entirely pleasant. So even you know, after some years of, of study and practice myself and feeling like I have some appreciation in an experiential sense for the value of uh, disenchantment on the path, still I hear that word, <laughs> disenchantment, dispassion, and my heart does not leap up at it. You know, there's a little bit of a, really, you know, is that really what we're doing here? <laughs> you know, it's just. Not, so, not such an inspiring word. It can, can sound like kind of a downer. It can have that connotation that the Buddha is, is urging us to cultivate, in a way, a bit of a sense of subtle aversion. You know, like it's, it's life-denying. But that's not at all the sense in which he used the word. So Nibida, in its experience and in its effect, is really not at all related to aversion. That's not the sense of it in the Pali. It's not the sense of it in the teachings. So as described by the Buddha, Nibida is an extremely wholesome process, incredibly wholesome. It's really instrumental to our transformation, to our spiritual transformation, and indispensable for awakening. So how do we get past that negative connotation that the word disenchantment can have? I came across a metaphor uh, online that I found uh, really very helpful for thinking about this, and unfortunately it was posted anonymously, so I can't give credit where credit is due. But 
still I found this a really helpful metaphor, so this person posting online uh, offered this metaphor, which perhaps might come from the teaching somewhere, I'm not even sure. But it said, as children, uh, we love our toys. You know, we, we delight in them, we love playing with them, they bring us much joy. Um, ideally, if they're healthy, wholesome toys, they help us to learn, to develop skills that are useful. Um, but then as we grow up, we move on. We become interested in other things. We find other things to entertain us, we find other ways of learning what we need to know. But that doesn't mean that we then feel an aversion towards our old toys, <laughs> or towards toys in general, or that we condemn children that are still playing with toys. You know, there's no sense of aversion in that. It's just simply that we've grown up, we've moved on. So we can think of nibida, of disenchantment, as having this kind of quality, the sense of outgrowing. That might be a better word to use for it in English. Outgrowing what's just not useful, what's not satisfying to us anymore. Moving on, or simply maturing, growing up spiritually. When I read this metaphor, um, it brought to mind this uh, verse um, that's really famous. Uh, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And I was raised Jewish, so, in, but this came to my mind. <laughs> and I thought originally, when it first came to my mind, you know, it's so, so, such a part of our culture that it was from a poem or something, so I Googled it. It turns out it's from the Bible. <laughs> it's probably some of you know, it's from Corinthians. Um, and interestingly, it comes up in the same kind of context of spiritual maturing. It's the same kind of idea that just as we grow as human beings and our spiritual understanding and our awakening, that we move beyond what's not useful, what's not satisfying anymore. So as our practice matures, we outgrow ways of seeking happiness that we come to realize are just ineffectual. They're like our old toys. So through practice, we mature spiritually and we lose interest, we lose faith in those things that we come to understand can't really satisfy us, can't give us that peace and happiness that we're looking for. It doesn't mean that we come to hate those things or feel any aversion towards those things. We're just simply not so interested in them anymore. Uh, Ajahn Brahm, who some of you may know of, who teaches on Australia, um, likes to use the word uh, disengagement for Nibida which is also a, an image that I like. Um, you know, if you imagine pushing in the clutch on the car, you know, and the gears disengage. You know, it's, there's, there's no friction there, there's no aggression there, it's just simply disengaging. Another very famous teaching is this verse from the Dhammapada. If by giving up small pleasures, great happiness is to be found, the wise should give up small pleasures seeing the prospect of great happiness. So this is a very lovely verse that captures this process of nibida, of disenchantment. Little by little we let go of more and more of the small pleasures so that we can gain the deeper, the greater happiness that's available. And in one way or another, really, we all come to practice through disenchantment. We wouldn't be here doing this if we had not become disenchanted in some way initially with whatever we were doing before in our lives that was not working. <laughs> this is how we all come to practice, or it wasn't working as well as we'd hoped. 
Some of us experience this quite early in life. We may come into circumstances where uh, we're really unable to make them right. We're unable to arrange things. We're too young, we're too powerless, we don't have the understanding to be able to make circumstances around us healthy and wholesome. And those who are supposed to be taking care of us are either also not able to, or for one reason or another, unwilling to. So for some of us, we we get the sense of disenchantment when we're still quite young, of just how vulnerable we are, of just how unreliable circumstances and conditions are, uh, how unable they are to give us a stable sense of happiness or even safety, well-being. For some of us, disenchantment may come a little bit later on in life. So maybe things go well for a while, shorter or longer period of time, Uh, And then something goes wrong, in either a small way or a big way. But enough to give us a wake-up call and to realize, again, that those circumstances, those conditions that we were depending on for our sense of happiness, security, well-being, are actually not so dependable. And we become disenchanted. And then there's some uh, few, few lucky ones of us that maybe are born into this life and under a lucky star, (laughs) into very charmed circumstances uh, where things go well for us. We have very good conditions around us and they stay good for maybe quite some time. But at some point, still, something happens and we kind of look around one day, you know, who knows why, and we kind of think, is this it? (laughs) Is this all there is? Is this really all there is to life? And things that maybe used to seem like they were enough, like they were good enough for us, they could satisfy us, start to seem a little hollow, like they don't quite do it for us anymore. So in one way or another, um, even before we ever get to the cushion, disenchantment has already started (laughs) to set in. That's what brings us to this practice. In some way, just even arriving at this point of that initial disenchantment enough to the, where we feel the inspiration to look for a different way and to start to look around for teachings and a practice uh, is, is once we've reached that point, most of the work is already done. <laughs> you know, actually doing the practice from that point, it's a relatively small portion of the path. And it can be helpful to reflect at times when, when the practice gets tough when we're having a hard time on our path, whether it's in formal practice or as we're experiencing it in our daily lives, uh, to reflect on what we've already outgrown. Because for all of us, there's a lot of things that we've already put behind us, that we've already uh, had enough of and grown beyond, and that we're not prepared to return to, those toys that we're just not willing to take up again. So again, a couple of weeks ago, I told this story about Nangala, who'd been, uh, in the time of the Buddha, a very poor agricultural labor, laborer, you know, doing this back-breaking work and just barely scraping by. And when he ordained, he put his shabby clothes and his heavy plow into the hollow of a tree outside the monastery. And every time the going got tough in the monastery, he would go outside of the gate and visit the relics of his former life in the tree there, which immediately you know, cured him of any desire to return to that former life. He'd become disenchanted with that life that he left and he just wasn't willing to go back to it. And there's things like that for all of us that can, and reflecting on that can be very motivating and help to keep us going. When disenchantment reaches a certain point, then it tends to give rise to samega, 
which is usually translated as spiritual urgency. And this is one that we don't really have a good word for in English. This is, this is a, an emotion, a feeling, a longing that there's really not, it's really not part of our lexicon in our culture. It's the movement of the heart to, to seek awakening, to seek freedom in some kind of active way, whether we realize this is what's happening or not. And often we don't realize this is what's happening, in large part because it's, it's simply not part of our cultural landscape. So as we lose faith in familiar ways of seeking happiness, then faith in the possibility of another option may stir in us. You know, the sense that there's, there must be something else. There must be another way to go about this life thing that's more satisfying. And especially if we hear the teachings of the Buddha, if we're exposed to the Dharma, we have that great blessing to hear the Dharma at the right time, when we're ripe for it, when we're receptive to it then there's this natural progression of, of the desire arising to explore the teachings and to see what might actually be possible out of this practice for ourselves. In our modern Western culture, there's, there's a really strong bias to interpret this urge, this longing as pathological. And uh, many of us have come up against this uh, on our spiritual path. There's just simply uh, very little understanding or very little validation of our natural spiritual longings as human beings in the, the culture and the world that we find ourselves in, most of us these days. And sometime back I came across this, this thought experiment from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, which I found really um, entertaining and also insightful. So this is what he writes. He says, ours, of course, is not the only culture threatened by feelings of samvega. In the Siddhartha story, the father's reaction to the young prince's discovery of aging, illness, and death stands for the way most cultures try to deal with these feelings. He tried to convince the prince that his standards for happiness were impossibly high, at the same time trying to distract him with relationships and every sensual pleasure imaginable. To put it simply, the strategy was to get the prince to lower his aims and to find satisfaction in lesser delights. If the young prince were living in America today, the father would have other tools for dealing with the prince's dissatisfaction, but the basic strategy would be essentially the same. We can easily imagine him taking the prince to a psychotherapist who would treat his feelings of San Vega as an inability to accept reality. If talk therapies didn't get results, the therapist would probably prescribe mood-altering drugs to dull the feeling out of the young man's system so that he could become a productive, well-adjusted member of society. If the father were really up on current trends, he might find a Dharma teacher who would counsel the prince to find happiness in life's little miraculous pleasures, a cup of tea, a walk in the woods, social activism, easing another person's pain. Never mind that these forms of happiness would still be cut short by aging, illness, and death, he would be told. The present moment is all we have, so we should try to appreciate the bittersweet opportunity of relishing but not holding on to the brief joys as they pass. So we can easily imagine, um, you know, it's not too much of a stretch to see the Bodhisattva being prescribed Prozac, you know, for his sense of spiritual urgency and dissatisfaction with life, if he were here today with us. 
And I don't mean to, to suggest at all through this little uh, thought exercise that we should all stop taking our meds and stop seeing our therapist. That's not the point <laughs> of the story. Um, I actually believe that there's, uh, you know, we, we live in a very uh, rich time where we do have the good fortune to have many different tools at our disposal to cope with what ails us. So that's not the point. Um, it definitely happens in our community that we can hide. We can do some spiritual bypassing. We can hide from doing some of the tough psychological or emotional work that perhaps we really do need to address through spiritual, under the guise of spiritual seeking, under that banner. But I think it can also equally happen and does happen, I suspect quite a lot, that um, there are many of us in this world that in this day and age that hide from spiritual seeking <laughs> under the guise of doing psychological work, doing emotional work. Um, that we take the Prozac, we take that uh, prescription, when perhaps what we really need is um, something else. Jack Endler, who is a, a great practitioner and teacher and also a psychoanalyst or therapist, um, wrote about uh, a teacher of his many years ago saying that it's, it's not the skeleton in our closet that we fear, it's the God. You know, in some way, it's a lot harder for us to accept that really we might have divinity, you know, or awakening, liberation, whatever we want to call it, that seed of it within us, than it is to accept that, you know, there's something really broken about our psyche. <laughs> it's the irony, but it's true for a lot of us. So in some way, uh, to some degree, at some time, um, disenchantment with the way that we've been living sets in. And enough of a sense of spiritual urgency awakens for us to start to seek out a teacher, teachings, a practice um, that will help us to explore other options, other options in life. And if we come to this practice and faith awakens, then at some point we sit down on the cushion or we walk the walking path and we start to really look at the mind and the body. So fast forwarding some, uh, skipping through however many intervening months and years there are on the path for us, uh, we come on retreat, we come on another retreat, we come on a lot of retreats. At some point we end up here at the forest refuge. And the process of disenchantment continues in a couple of different ways. So there's the case where um, you know, we're slogging through our practice, we're really working hard, trying to do our best, trying to be mindful, trying to do everything all the teachers tell us to do. And at some point, the mind actually begins to become collected. We begin to become concentrated. And we start to have some nice experiences in our meditation. We begin to experience the delights of the Dharma, Dharma delight. This is another uh, verse from the Dhammapada. For a yogi with a peaceful mind who enters an empty dwelling and clearly sees the true Dhamma, there is superhuman joy. And at times we experience this. And these uh, Dhamma delights um, are fairly well documented. It's interesting that it's the directions that the human mind goes are fairly consistent with some minor variations. So this is the traditional list of Dharma pleasures. Um, there's the uh, pleasures of illuminations. These are all the various visual affects that we can experience. So it might be simply that bright light radiating in front of us or radiating from, radiating from us, along with that sense of pleasure, joy, 
Um, at times, for some of us, it may morph into colors, or there may be images that appear, all of it very magnetic, very mesmerizing, very pleasurable. Uh, there's all the different varieties of rapture, different ways of uh, energy manifesting in the body through the practice that are generally pleasurable or have a pleasurable element to them. At times can be extremely uh, pleasant, uh, really uh, strong feelings of delight permeating the body, quite a bit of rapture that comes out of the, the raptness, the intentness of the mind that's collected. There can be the pleasure of clarity, those times when uh, maybe things are relatively calm, but just there's this sharp, uh, radiant, luminous quality to the mind and to the awareness of the mind that's just so uh, energizing and so satisfying. Then there can be the pleasure of tranquility, where there's a great calm in the body, great settledness in the body, and also in the mind. The mind's very at ease, very comfortable, very content. There can be sukha, spiritual happiness. So this very light, very refined sense of sweetness, of just complete contentment and joy. There can be the pleasure of faith that arises as we begin to become concentrated, feeling so inspired, feeling so confident about the practice, feeling like we want to tell the world the good news, (laughs) share it with everybody, which can be a state of, of a great deal of pleasure and joy feeling that kind of faith. There can be the, the pleasure of balanced energy. So, so we've been striving, working so hard, getting exhausted. We've been taking breaks, to, you know, letting up, not working hard enough. At some point, the energy comes into balance, as I spoke about last week. And there's this kind of effortless effort happening where, where there's a, a continuous presence of just moment after moment. Here we are in the present moment with, without feeling like we have to make it happen at all. And it has this delightful quality of uh, being both energized and relaxed, alert and tranquil. There's the pleasure of mindfulness itself. So when the mindfulness really develops some momentum, and again, there's a sense of just effortless mindfulness, moment by moment by moment. We don't even have to make it happen. We don't have to even have to make any effort. Experiences arise, sensations arise, they're known, thoughts come into the mind, they're known. And the, this, again, this kind of continuous presence just seems to be rolling along on its own steam. And we can just sit, settle back and watch the show as it goes by. It can be very pleasant, very enjoyable. And then there's the pleasure of equanimity, which isn't really pleasant per se, but when the mind really comes into a non-reactive balance, not being pushed and pulled by pleasant and unpleasant, but just resting in this kind of stability, which is very, very peaceful, very, very tranquil. Another form of Dharma delight. So any or all of these experiences can arise, do arise to different degrees at times in practice. And they have a powerful effect on us. These really make an impression on us. They have an effect on just how we think about the whole topic of pleasure and happiness and just what's available to us on kind of the menu of human experiences that are possible. So when we experience this kind of Dhamma delight, it really starts to shift our whole frame of reference for how we think about what is happiness, what is pleasure, what is satisfaction. And in particular, they really shift how we think about what we call worldly pleasure. 
the pleasure of the senses. So worldly pleasures are those, uh, those kinds of happiness, those kinds of joy that come through contact with the world, through, through our senses. So either through the five physical senses or through the sense door of the mind, intellectual stimulation, emotional stimulation. So there's a certain quality of pleasure, of joy, of happiness that we can experience through our experiences that we have, through our contact with the sensual world. And these are available to pretty much everybody, you know, even those of us in pretty miserable situations, um, which unfortunately there are many of us in the world, but even, even those of us in the most difficult situations have our moments of just simple worldly pleasure. You know, we taste something pleasant, we see something pleasant, we touch something pleasant, we hear something pleasant, we think about something pleasant, we feel a pleasant emotion. You know, this is, this is part of the human landscape for all of us. When we experience uh, dharma delights, these are what's called unworldly pleasures because they don't come from contact with the sensual world. They don't come from experiencing anything in particular, seeing anything, hearing anything, touching anything, thinking anything. Um, They're not related to the world in the conventional sense. Instead, the delights of the dharma are pleasures that arise out of the quality of the mind itself out of the quality of the mind that's present, out of the quality of the mind that's experiencing, that's knowing. And uh, they're much better, in case you hadn't noticed. Dharma delights are, are much better in just kind of a, you know ordinary conventional way than worldly pleasures. They're much more refined, they're much more subtle, they're much more satisfying. Uh, they can be much more intense, much more sustained. Um, so once we begin to experience Uh, Dharma delights, unworldly pleasure, it tends to really take the shine (laughs) off of how we see worldly pleasure. Worldly pleasure doesn't quite measure up in the same way anymore once we get this broader perspective on what's possible. And this can be the point at which it becomes uh, at times rather difficult to have a conversation with some of our friends who are not yogis, (laughs) who don't know where we're coming from, that don't have this other perspective. You know, so it can be hard to explain that after spending, you know, three hours bathed in unabated bliss and radiance, um, catching up on the next episode of Downton Abbey, you know, meh, meh, (laughs) or whatever it might be, you know, for us. Um, You know, it's not that we don't still watch Downton Abbey and enjoy it to a certain extent, but, you know, it doesn't, we, we don't have the same, you know, idea about where it ranks in the hierarchy of human pleasures. You know, this can also be the point at which our lifestyle really starts to shift, um, either consciously or or very often also unconsciously, just as our perspective changes. So this tends to be the point at which people like sell their TV, you know, where they stop going to, you know, the bar every Friday night, or again, whatever it might be for each of us. Um, Even certain relationships, we may find that we just don't have the enthusiasm about them anymore because of you know, what they bring out in us or what they give rise to. So we may find that relationships fall away um, out of our lives that are not in accord with the Dharma and with the direction that we're heading. So all of this is a continuation of this ongoing process of disenchantment, increasing disenchantment with worldly pleasures, worldly happiness that begins with those first stirrings of disenchantment, 
with our life, to bring us to the Dharma. And it's said that they don't really end until uh, third stage of enlightenment. (laughs) So um, first stage of enlightenment is said to uh, bring about enough disenchantment that we can no longer be reborn in hell which we may take literally, you know, certainly there's many Buddhists who take this in a very literal sense. Um, or we may think of it as just that we become disenchanted enough with worldly pleasures that we just can't get so worked up about them anymore to the point where we become so obsessed that we really fall into states of deep despair, you know, deep anguish around them. Um, that's one way of interpreting it. Second stage of enlightenment is said to bring a a significant attenuation in in craving and attachment and clinging around worldly pleasures. So it's not completely gone, but there's a big drop in how involved we get with them and how much we care about them still. And then third stage of enlightenment, there's said to be finally the complete uprooting of craving around worldly pleasure. That finally, you know, after seeing it enough, getting this message enough, that we really, at some point, just get over it. And we're just not interested in playing with those toys anymore, the toys of, of worldly pleasure. So for a long time, you know, kind of the message of this <laughs> is that for a long time, attachment to worldly pleasures is going to be there. It's going to be part of our landscape. Um, even as this process of disenchantment is unfolding and growing and deepening in us, there's, there's, there's going to be these two parallel tracks going on that there's still an attraction, there's still an allure to worldly pleasures, but there's also this movement away from them, about growing them. Most of us seem to be uh, designed to go through kind of this long, what we might think of as a spiritual adolescence. <laughs> um, you know, where we're not really children anymore, you know, we're not completely enchanted with the toys, um, but we haven't really grown up and completely grown beyond them yet either. So, you know, we may remember our adolescence, you know, whether it's uh, relatively recent or further away for us. Um, I have a a keen memory of being in high school and standing around, uh, you know, out school, um, outside the school one day in the, you know, in the schoolyard with my friends and kind of you know, we've got our clothes on and our makeup and our hairdos and we're talking about boyfriends and, you know, our classes and stuff and feeling very grown up. And um, then an ice cream truck pulled up. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that was just ice cream, you know. And we were, we were kids again, you know. And um, this is very much how spiritual practice goes for a long time, you know. This is kind of this, this we got one foot in both worlds, you know. We're not really over here. We're not really over there yet. Um, and that's okay. You know, it's kind of an awkward age. We tend to have a long, spiritual, awkward age. And that's just the way that it is, just like with our physical and intellectual maturing. It's just the natural rhythms of human development. So it, it's, it's not really uh, appropriate or helpful to feel like that's in some way a failure, a personal failing. You know, we can, we can get this idea that because we're still uh, attracted to, you know, X sense pleasure, still drawn by that, or still feel a desire for, you know, certain worldly pleasures, that somehow the practice isn't working, you know, that we're, that we're not getting it, uh, that we're failures as yogis. You know, that's, that's not at all um, the takeaway from, from this dynamic. It's just simply how it goes for all of us. It's really delusion to feel, feel that that, you know, that the pull towards worldly pleasure, the pull towards uh, worldly um, happiness is somehow personal. It's really impersonal. 
you know, the, even the, the plants lean towards the sunshine. You know, it's, it's just, we're all programmed this way to lean into the pleasure that's readily available. This dynamic can also explain um, why it does happen. It can happen. It does happen that there may be teachers who seem to have some real understanding, some real compassion, um, that offer valuable teachings that are helpful to many people, um, but may at some point make a big boo-boo, <laughs> you know, something around sex or money or power, um, because they're not done yet. You know, they're, they're along with the rest of us in this adolescent phase with one foot in each uh, camp. You know, which is not at all to say that we, we should tolerate uh, ethical lapses in people in positions of power that are, that are, you know, our spiritual teachers, but we can understand. We can understand how that happens. It can happen to all of us. And this is also one reason why I think there's this taboo in our tradition around um, making any kind of declaration of attainment or where we are on the path. That's definitely frowned upon in this particular tradition. Um, Again, we can probably all remember being maybe 16 or 18, somewhere around there, and feeling like we were quite grown up and quite mature and quite in you know, command of our faculties and our lives and knew what was best for us, and perhaps trying to impress that upon our teachers or our parents. Um, and then some years down the line, having a different perspective on where we actually were in our maturity. And I think the same thing can happen in our spiritual practice. We just really don't know where we are you know, on the path a lot of the time or how mature we are. So the experience of dharma delights, of these unworldly pleasures and, ki- and kinds of happiness serve a very useful purpose in this process of disenchantment. They help to wean us, to wean us off of sense pleasure and our addiction to sense pleasure by giving us this larger perspective of what's possible. And also just in practical terms, um, dharma delights are very motivating. <laughs> they really help to get us Uh, back to our meditation, back to our next retreat. Um, How many of us here are at some level hoping for a little bit of taste of that bliss that we had, you know, last retreat or five retreats ago or 10 years ago or, you know, whenever it might have been. We can spend a long time, you know, seeking a, 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 you know, encore of whatever it was that was so delightful. And this is completely natural, you know, it's complete, again, it's completely normal and natural that when we discover higher, more satisfying types of pleasure and happiness, that we'll want to cultivate them, that we'll want to enjoy them. This is just human nature. It really would really be quite bizarre if we had some wonderful meditative experience and some craving and grasping didn't arise around it at the beginning. And this isn't inherently a problem as long as our enchantment with whatever dharma delights that we experience doesn't detour us away from this larger process, this this greater unfolding of disenchantment, which is really the point of the path. So as long as that, that enchantment with dharma delights doesn't become a hindrance or an obstacle to continuing with our spiritual maturing, which is ultimately what's going to lead us to freedom. However, it is very telling that there is a specific poly term for the variety of craving that we can fall into around Dharma delights. 
there is a particular word for this, and I think there's a reason for it. So Mahasi Sayadaw says, Taking pleasure in and enjoying extraordinary meditation experiences is a form of craving called nikanti. It's so soft and subtle that it's often mistaken for wholesome bliss or enlightenment or a sign of enlightenment. Any moment of observation can be accompanied by any obstacle to insight or by a combination of any of them. In the worst case, they all occur simultaneously. So this is the worst case where we're sitting, we're bathed in light, we're filled with bliss, there's effortless energy in the whole shebang. You know, this can be a big obstacle to our practice. So when we become overly enchanted with Dharma delights and become really attached, you know, not, not just that we enjoy them, not just that we'd like to have them again, uh, not just that they brought us back to the cushion or to retreat again, but that we're really fixated, obsessed uh, with them then they're considered obstacles to the development of further wisdom. And to the point that they're called uh, in this uh, function, corruptions of insight. It's a pretty strong term, corruptions of insight. So the Vasudhi Maga says that these are the 10 corruptions of insight. One's mind wavers due to light, knowledge and rapture. The mind is moved by tranquility and happiness. It shakes due to faith, energy and mindfulness equanimity along with equilibrium and delight. Some pretty wonderful obstacles. And the irony with this uh, is that this is what happens if we're actually practicing effectively. So if everything's going well, then we experience the pleasure of the Dharma. We do experience meditative delights and we can get really caught up in them. It can happen. So these obstacles, uh, the Vasudhi Maga goes on to say, uh, will not arise for meditators who are practicing incorrectly or for meditators who stop practicing or for those who are too lazy to practice. They arise for meditators who practice properly and continuously and energetically. So it's kind of like there's these obstacles, <laughs> you know, these hurdles built into the path. If we're doing it right, then experiences will arise that will challenge the process of disenchantment. And it said that there's three ways in which we tend to get obsessed with Dharma pleasures. The first is through just simply craving, you know, just simply the intense longing, desire to uh, re-experience, continue to experience whatever forms of Dharma pleasure have come up. We've all probably heard uh, the saying, which I don't even know where it comes from anymore. I guess it was a, a student of Joseph's that said this once, but that there's nothing like a good suit sitting to ruin your day <laughs> because it just really <laughs> leads to a lot of tanha, a lot of craving. Um, and then the, the whole rest of the day <laughs> becomes all about craving or the whole, again, the whole rest of the year, or the whole rest of the decade. You know. um, second way in which we tend to get obsessed with Dharma pleasures is through uh, mana, which is usually translated as conceit, which can have the flavor of pride. You know, so maybe we have some really pleasant, unusual for us experience in our meditation, um, and you know, the, the self kind of steps in and says, oh, "I must be doing really well." <laughs> you know, I wonder if anybody else here has had anything like this. You know, this must mean I'm really on the track to enlightenment, or maybe I'm even enlightened already. You know, that's the voice of, of mana coming in. For those of us that tend to have uh, self-esteem problems, the voice of mana can be a little bit harder to identify. 
It might just simply see, be the voice that comes in and says, phew, okay, I must be doing all right. You know, I can't be too far off base if I'm having this, you know, whatever it is. I must be an okay yogi, you know. And the, the third way in which we can get caught up in Dharma pleasures is through a wrong view, DT, mistaken view. So this is the, the interpretation of the mind to make these Dharma ple- pleasures personal, to make it about me. Oh, I'm having this wonderful uh, bliss, you know, or my practice has produced this, uh, you know, incredible rapture or whatever it might be. You know, my mind is so clear, my mind is so tranquil. So adding in that delusion that somehow these, you know, really impersonal, natural experiences that are arising are all about me in whatever way our minds might do that. So because these hindrances can creep in around these Dharma experiences, this is one of the reasons that we need a teacher because this can be one of the really tricky areas to navigate. And, you know, if we've been at this for any amount of time, chances are, um, if it hasn't already happened at some point, we're going to need a, a good kick in the pants <laughs> from a, a good spiritual friend, you know, that's willing to call it like it is and uh, point out to us that we've gotten caught. You know, sooner or later, we will come to realize that these Dharma pleasures have exactly the same nature as worldly pleasures. They really have all the same uh, drawbacks. Um, the question is, is it sooner or later <laughs> that we come to realize that? And how much time uh, are we willing to uh, spend going around and around, uh, kind of um, circling in a holding pattern around whatever Dharma pleasure we may have become infatuated with? So the process of disenchantment has to continue around unworldly pleasure as well as worldly pleasure, which tends to happen naturally, again, as practice progresses. So as we experience uh, more refined dharma pleasures, then the the grosser ones, the coarser ones, again, the same thing, lose some of their shine, don't seem so appealing. And so there's this kind of rolling progression of, oh, okay, I thought that was good, but now I've got this, and this is much better. You know, and then I thought this was good, but now I've got this, and that's actually a lot better. So there's this way in which we kind of progress through uh, various dharma experiences, um, continuing to readjust our, frame, our, our framework, our point of view, continuing to expand our perspective on what's possible. And in time, to come to see the unre- unreliability of even these very refined pleasures of meditative states, even the most refined, subtle states of mind, uh, they change, they're highly conditioned, they're unreliable. So now rewinding a little bit, backtracking a little bit through, the, through our path, uh, in parallel with the disenchantment that's happening through the experience of Dharma delights, there's also the disenchantment that's happening through just simply our mindfulness practice and eventually through insight, when insight starts to be activated and to really make itself felt. So when we first start meditating and we actually see what's going on in the mind and the body, take a look at that in some real uh, detail, some direct uh, observation, very disenchanting <laughs> you know, when, we, when we start to see you know, how the body actually operates, everything that comes up in it, how con- out of control it is. We start to, to get, you know, very quickly that the body is, is it's a lost cause. 
You know, it's never going to give us what we want, no matter how young, how healthy, how great a yoga practice we've got. You know, it's dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Um, so we start to get that right away, and you know, equally with the mind, <laughs> you know, we might struggle a little bit, thinking, okay, maybe I can get all this under control if I just do this, if I do the other, if I do, if I work with it this way, or work with it that way, or bring in this technique, maybe I can get this mind to do what I want it to do. But again, pretty quickly, <laughs> you know, it becomes clear, you know, good luck with that. So disenchantment, a lot of disenchantment here. And then even more so, and in a much deeper, more powerful way, when insight starts to arise, when we start to really see the three universal characteristics of existence, when we start to see anicca, dukkha, and anatta, we get this even more deeply, just how fleeting, just how ephemeral every experience is, no matter how wonderful, so like those wonderful Dharma delights, um, even those are continuously disappearing you know, they're great when they're there, but then when they're gone, they leave nothing behind them that we can keep, that will continue to satisfy us. When they're gone, all we want is just to get them back again, because they don't leave us with anything that's lasting. So as wisdom grows, then we're bound to be uh, increasingly disenchanted, both with worldly experience and unworldly experience. And this is not always particularly good news. You know, this, this is a source of great, um, what we might call unworldly pain. So pain, again, that's not associated with having some unpleasant experience, encountering something unpleasant in the world, but from coming into contact with this very disappointing truth <laughs> of how things are. This gives, gives rise to unworldly pain. The pain of the Dharma, the pain of realizing that nothing that we know nothing that we've experienced, nothing that we can find in our mind or body uh, can really give us much and certainly can't give us what we're longing for, peace, happiness, contentment, stability, safety. So when we come up against you know, truth on this level, this is disenchantment with a capital D. This is big disenchantment. And there can be along with that a lot of reactivity, again, which is very natural, that sense of loss, a sense of mourning, it can be a lot of anger, it can be a lot of fear. Um, So we can have very strong reactions to coming up against these hard truths of the way things are. There's a lot of talk these days about um, the dark night of mindfulness practice or vipassana practice, that it can take us to very dark places. Um, And it's true, it's true. This is part of the path. It's an unavoidable part of the path that we have to go through this process of mourning what it is that we're letting go of, what it is that we're becoming disenchanted with, which again has this great irony because the reason that we're letting go of these things, of these strategies for happiness, is because we've discovered that they don't work. You know, so we become convinced on, on some level that we're not going to find satisfaction through these things that are familiar to us. And yet it still really can be disconcerting to let go of them to let them go, to move on, to have had, felt, feel like we've had enough of them, because it's all we've known, you know? So it can be difficult to let go of what we've outgrown if we don't have faith that there's something waiting for us ahead on the path. And this is another area where faith is so essential in our practice, 
if we don't really, at least in- intuitively, have some sense that there is another option, that there is something waiting for us down the road beyond what it is that we've outgrown, that it can be very difficult to um, pry the last few fingernails off the edge of the cliff because it feels like we're just dropping into an abyss. You know, that's, what, that's the vision of what <laughs> we have before us. We don't know where the bottom is. It can feel very much like leaping into a void, um, which in a way it is. You know, so even those of us that feel like we have some real faith in the possibility of awakening and the possibility of a radically different way of relating to our lives, even for, even for those of us that have some real faith, um, still it's something that we haven't directly experienced for ourselves. So it's still a big leap into the unknown. So it requires a lot of faith, a lot of courage, courageous effort, and all of the other paramis that um, this path is a lot about uh, cultivating, that we need to cultivate all of these supportive qualities that will allow us to really take that last step, jump off the cliff and into something that we don't know, that's still new. At a certain point though, we find ourselves uh, in the middle of the raging river in the middle of the flood, at a place where our feet won't touch bottom. And we realize (laughs) that there's only one direction to go. It's forward. So when we find ourselves in that dark night of the practice, uh, the only way to go is towards the light at the end of the tunnel. There's really no other option. I just want to end by reading this one sutta, which talks about Again, the organicness of this process of moving through disenchantment and towards another option for happiness. This is called, uh, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya, it's called the Chaitanya Sutta, uh, which is translated as an act of will. That's the name of the sutta. For a person diligent in practicing virtue, consummate in virtue, there's no need for an act of will may freedom from remorse arise in me. It's the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a a person endowed with virtue and consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there's no need for an act of will, may joy arise in me. It's in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there's no need for an act of will, may rapture arise in me. It's the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there's no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It's in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there's no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It's in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there's no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It's in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there's no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It's in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. For a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, 
There's no need for an act of will. May I feel disenchantment. It's in the nature of things that a person who knows and sees things as they actually are feels disenchantment. For a person who feels disenchantment, there's no need for an act of will. May I grow dispassionate. It's in the nature of things that a person who feels disenchantment grows dispassionate. For a dispassionate person, there's no need for an act of will. May I realize liberation from suffering. It's in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes liberation from suffering. In this way, wholesome mental qualities lead naturally to wholesome mental qualities and bring them to their consummation for the sake of going from the near to the further shore. So let's chant together the sharing of blessings. 